Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. This Advent, we're looking at the book of Ezekiel, and we're, we're asking a very simple question. What does Ezekiel have to say about Christmas? And what does he say about um, how Christmas ought to be understood? And we're into chapter 37, which is very famous. It's one of the more famous um, themes, I would say, in perhaps all the Old Testament. Let me read that. It's chapter 37, verses 1 to 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behind, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin covered them, or had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your grave, and raise you from your grave, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves, and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it for clarity. Okay. So there's this Irish poet named, uh, well, he's, he's passed away, uh, William Butler Yeats. And he has a, a poem called Second Coming. And in it, he says this. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. And he, that's a pretty good description of what is happening to Israel at the point of when Ezekiel is prophesying. They are realizing that the further you get away from the center, the further you get away from God, the harder it becomes to hold anything together. In fact, everything starts to fall apart bit by bit. And Israel understands that. And it's not just of Israel, it's us, of us as well. And it's kind of like if you've seen those old cartoons where a character would get his, his sweater snagged on something. And then as he starts running away, it starts to unravel bit by bit, and then he's left naked by the end of it. It's the same thing, but the only difference is the further you run away from God, you end up unraveled. Not your, not your sweater, but you. 
we become less human the further away from God we are. And this is what Ezekiel has been telling Israel since he went into exile with them. He's been telling them, the world was set up a certain way. God made it so that you had to be near him if you wanted to be blessed, if you wanted to live and flourish. But you have moved away. And because of the way you've behaved, because of the way you've lived and running away from God, the land has effectively vomited you out. It's cast you out. You're out of the land now. And this is not just Israel. This is the human condition. Because the picture of the vision that, that Ezekiel gets of these dry bones is for Israel. But it's a mimicry because Israel goes through what all humanity goes through and has been going through since the garden. We're exiled, cast away from God. And the further away we get, the worse we become. And Israel acknowledges this. In verse 11, they say plainly, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. And so that's the human condition. We find ourselves cut off from God. But into this vision comes hope as well. And this is where Christmas comes in. Because Christmas means, as we're going to see in this passage, hope for the hopeless, which we actually sung, life for the dead, and peace for the world. So it means those three things. So let's see how this passage shows us that. And we begin with hope for the hopeless. There's this wonderful, we're going to cover the book of Ezekiel probably in the fall of next year. But there's this wonderful, well, lots of wonderful things in Ecclesiastes. Sorry, did I say Ezekiel? Sorry, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 8 is this wonderful line. It says, because the sentence against evil, uh, evil, an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of men is fully set to do evil. And what he, what he means, what the Kohalat, what the teacher means, when he's, Solomon presumably, when he writes this, he's saying, when, this is pretty human, right? When, when you and I do something, if we don't get struck by lightning the moment we've done it, we think, well, God must be okay with it. It's this, we almost treat God like we're defusing a bomb, right? We, slip, we snip the, uh, the cable and it's like, oh, okay, we're good, we're good. And it sounds innocent, but it's really not. When we aren't hit by lightning, and Christians do this all the time, you hear things like, I know I shouldn't have cheated on my spouse, but I'm so happy now with the second woman. You know, God would have put an end to it, right? If it was bad. And we hear this sort of a thing all the time. And um, it's wrong. And here's why it's wrong. Because, and this is why Ecclesiastes points to it. We are prone to confuse grace with approval. See, when God doesn't smack you immediately when you've done something wrong, it's not because he approves necessarily. It's because he's gracious. But we, as, as always, as the Bible tells us time and again, is we stomp on his grace and we say, no, it's not so much his grace. There's one of two things that's happening. If I have done a bad thing or something I know I shouldn't have, but he hasn't hammered me for it, then he either approves of it or he's impotent. Either he's weak and he's not doing anything about it, and he doesn't exist, which is what most secular people in Canada think, right? If God is here, then why? If God is real, then why suffering? Why has he not hammered the right wing or the left wing, right? Why has he not done whatever? And this is a huge, huge error in the way we think. And when Israel, Israel before they go into exile, are guilty of it. Because, you know, if you're here in the first time, Ezekiel is a kid when Jeremiah is prophesying. He's born, and Jeremiah had been prophesying for about five years. So he grows up listening to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah keeps telling Israel exactly this. You stop confusing all the nice reforms that, uh, that Josiah is going through, right? Josiah the king had been doing good things in Israel. So when Jeremiah comes and says, the end is coming, Israel's like, come on, 
Jeremiah, you're just a, you're a bummer, man. Things are going well. Stop it. If God was angry, do you think he'd be flourishing the country like this? So they start saying these things, and Jeremiah is pleading with them to understand that that's not the case. And so Israel, when, when defeat comes and Babylon defeats them in the war, and then they're exiled, and eventually they crush and destroy the city and the temple and everything and the walls, they're defeated. Hope escapes Israel, the Judeans at that point. They completely have no hope because then they had hoped that God would be their protection. But where is he? He's not here. He had hoped, they had hoped that God was their future because he had a plan for them. But now what's the future if their home is destroyed? And they had a mission. God had intended Israel to be uh, the mirror by which the world sees itself and the light by which it sees God. But if those things are gone, then there's no meaning in life. They've lost everything. And so they're incredibly disillusioned. And so where do you find hope when there is no God? Now, the world has a lot of answers. I googled it this, year, this week, and you can find a, a million self-help websites. There's one called tinybuddha.com, which is just terrible. But if you look at it, and you just ask the question on Google, what, where do you find hope? First, it assumes you're depressed, so it'll, it'll rightly bring up these things about suicide prevention. But then it sends you to these websites and say, there's a million places you can find hope, and none of them talk about God. But the things they mention are, and I'll just use a few because you can't say all of them. One is something like gratitude. You know, if you're feeling hopeless at this time of year, just count your blessings. Okay? Another one is change. You know, be hopeful because the world changes. Tomorrow your circumstances can be different than they are today. So gratitude is change. Another one is goodness of people. Just listen, people are generally good. Now, yes, there's some bad apples, of course, but generally they're good. So have hope. The world's not so bad. You know, lift yourself up. You'll be all right. Now, the problem with this is inherently in the words. The world wants us to see what we need to do to feel better, but the Bible tells us what we have to do is not feel hope, but have hope. There's a very big difference between feeling something and having it. And what we, what we find in the world, the weight of reality, of life, is that your feelings of hope will be destroyed because they're insufficient. If you simply have hope in something and you feel it, and it feels really good when everything's well. But when the weight of life begins to pour, to push down, on those, those, those hopes. It reveals very quickly the ones that are fraudulent and counterfeit and the ones that are authentic. And one example might be a guy named Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a um, psychiatrist, and he was in uh, four different concentration camps during the Second World War, including Auschwitz, and he survived. But as a psychiatrist, Jewish psychiatrist, he watched it, um, obviously trying to survive, but also as a psychiatrist. So he wrote a book afterwards called Man's Search for Meaning. And it's short, but it's really an excellent book. And in it, he, he says, you know, hope, when you get in, when people got into the concentration camps, all of them came in with a degree of hope of, in something. They were all hoping in something to get them through. But here's the problem. When they came in hoping with, I'm going to count my blessings. What blessings are you going to count in the concentration camps? Which ones? The fact that you can't eat? The fact that rats are your bedmates, the fact that you have to watch children be hung, which one is it? So he said, gratitude, it doesn't work. It sounds good, but the weight of brutality of the world crushed it. Hope is, that doesn't work. The, uh, change, tomorrow will be a better day. Really? Not in the concentration camp, it wasn't. It was just as bad as the next day, maybe worse. Because at least you lived through the day that went by, you may not live through this one. So this change, that you can't, there's no hope there. The goodness of humanity? Like, and I'm not trying to be flippant. 
you see, we play with ideas like kittens with a ball of string. We say things in the, in the media and in social media, and we say these things, we put them on memes, and we think that they mean something. But the hope that we have is so fragile. And we don't know it because we haven't, and I'm not praying this by any stretch, but we haven't had a good war in a long time. When was the last time we really suffered? And it's hard. So we have hopes, and it's understandable that people cling to these little platitudes for hope, but under the weight of real life and suffering, they collapse. Because what Frankl found was in the camps, the people would do anything to survive. Some would decided the best way to survive was to collaborate with the Nazis, with their own prisoners, with their own guards. But that didn't work. Others thought Darwin was right, and it's just survival of the fittest. So let's just start stealing other people's food, other people's rations. It'll just be as, That's what we have to do to survive. But that didn't work either, because they ended up dying just like everybody else. And so what was the hope? And, he, and what Victor says is things like, you know, all of our illusions of hope fell like the three little pig's houses as soon as the wind came. And so, where was the hope? And here's what he found. Fascinating. He found that the people who survived... No, I won't put that up yet. I'll leave that in a second. Sorry. Um, he found that the people who were most likely to survive are the ones who had a hope that was not in the camp, that was not a horizontal hope. I don't hope for tomorrow. I don't hope for you. I don't hope in my money. I hope in something that is unseen. I hope in, a, in something beyond the camp. And he has lots of things, lots of different bits of where he speaks about it. But it gets summed up nicely at the preface of the book by a guy named Gold, Gordon Allport, who is the, um, he's in Harvard, and he wrote the preface for his book. And this is what, how he sums it up. Hunger, humiliation, fear, and deep anger at injustice are rendered tolerable by closely guarded images of beloved persons, by religion, by a grim sense of humor, and even by glimpses of the healing beauties of nature, a tree or a sunset. But these moments of comfort do not establish the will to live unless they help the prisoner make larger sense out of his apparently senseless suffering. To live is to suffer. To survive is to find meaning in the suffering. If there is a purpose in life at all, there must be a purpose in suffering and in dying. If he succeeds in finding meaning in suffering, he will continue to grow in spite of all indignities. As Nietzsche, who is an atheist, said, he who has a way, a why to live can bear with almost any how. Now what Alport is saying as a result of what Frankl found is you and I find hope when we can find meaning in the world that is not hopeful. We have to look for some, it doesn't mean you have to understand why you suffer. Nobody here, how many of us know why one person dies young, one person doesn't? We don't know that. It's above our pay grade. But what we do do, and what we can do, what the gospel helps us to do, what Christianity helps us to do, is help us understand that the suffering has a purpose. We may not always understand the purpose for us, but we know that it is purposeful. It's not just meaningless. It's not just random. And this allows us to have a robust hope that can actually hold up under the weight of life. And it's very simple. If there is no hope, then we should be pitied. Right? That's Corinthians. If Christ only provides us with hope here and now, then we're in trouble. But we don't. We have a bigger, a greater hope that's found again, vertically, not just horizontally. And we find it in this passage in all the I will statements, like last week. When God comes to Israel and says that it's a mess. You're dry bones. You're dead. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And he says, but I will, and he says all these things, I will breathe life into you. I will open your grave. I will raise you. I will bring you to a land. I will cause you to know me. I will make you to live. I will put my spirit in you. When he does this, 
what he is, what we, what God tells Israel is, yes, you're suffering, but you need to know that I will end and use suffering. I will use it for your glory. I'll do something with it. It's not just simply going to be for nothing. And he goes even further. When he says, I will do it, we then see in the New Testament, at, well, not Christmas, after Christmas, but we see Christ not just say, I will do it, but he says it is finished. And so God is somehow able to do this, and this is to make suffering come out of something beautiful. And this is the first thing. How do you get hope at Christmas? It's by latching on to the certainties of the promises of God. And R.C. Sproul says it better than like usual than I can. Hope is called the anchor of the soul in Hebrews because it gives stability to the Christian life. But hope is not simply a wish. I wish that such and such would take place. Rather, it is that, that, which, that which latches on to the certainty of the promises of the future that God has made. Christians, like it or not, our, we are called to look at the future and hold on to that despite what we see now. And one of the critiques that can come is, but Christians as a result can be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Right? You're so hopeful for the next world that you can care less about this one. I understand that. And there's some Christians who surely do that. There's no doubt about it. However, when you look at the great, air quotes here, uh, Christians of the past, the ones who have really transformed the world and culture, you'll notice something. They were so focused on the future that it demanded they impact the present. And so the, what we know of the future demands us to be active here. So it doesn't actually quite work. But this is the idea. Christmas first brings hope in this way. There is a hope for this world. Now, then there's life for the dead. This idea of dry bones is very significant. When you speak about seeing dry bones, first there's a very practical physiological one I was reminded of this week, which is 95% of our blood comes from the bones. So to have dry bones is not good. You die. That's a, obvious, that's, I think that's the understatement. But when Ezekiel sees dry bones out before him, that's to understand if they're dry bones, these are not newly dead things. This is long dead. Long dead Israel. We learn, we learn in verse 11 that it's Israel that he's looking at. And when, so when God comes to him and says, Son of man, can these bones live? What do you think? Well, no. Right? No, the answer is no. It's, I, I think it's almost intentional that you're, you're supposed to. It's a rhetorical question. Yeah, of course not. They can't live. And we know, and we know that's what he wants Ezekiel to conclude, at least partly. Because Ezekiel says before he asks the question, God tours him through the bones. I walked up and down, to and fro, uh, amongst the, the bones. Why is he walking around the bones? He's making sure there's no signs of life. God wants to make sure he knows that these bones cannot live. And what's incredible about this is he is calling a living people dead. So he's using this image of absolute deadness, but he's describing people who are very much alive, at least biologically. And so... When he says, Israel, are these dead bones? You have a couple of options. You could say, well, listen, it's just hyperbole. He's just using a simile. It's, it's like they're dead. Not what he says. He doesn't say it's like they were dead. Quite the opposite. He says, these are the bones of Israel in verse 11. So, there is a way, God is saying, for you to be biologically animate and moving and yet be dead. And not just acting like you're dead. Dead. What does that mean? How does that... I don't understand how that works in my head all the time. But nonetheless, that's what he's saying. And we need to understand that. That when we see these dead bones, Israel has no hope for itself. It can't fix itself. There's no hope. You can't say the old Billy Graham, and I love Billy Graham, but we have to be careful with his language when he says, I threw, God throws you a life preserver and you have to latch onto it yourself. Dead bones, friends. 
Dead bones don't latch on anything. And so what does that mean? Let's we can deal with that mystery in your groups. But when he says this, we have to understand what again Ian Dugard is wonderful Old Testament process. They are as dead as it was possible to be. And that while and that while physically still alive. For they themselves said, Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. They knew themselves to be dead while they lived. For they were cut off from the living giving or sorry, life giving presence of the living God, and therefore without hope. This is this this reminded me this week of that of that uh, phrase you've probably heard, dead man walking. It got popular and was coined in 20th century America for criminals uh, that were uh, condemned to execution for their crimes. And as they would walk on the day of their execution from their cell to the, the place of execution, their other prisoners would say, dead man walking, dead man walking. And yet, so you say, well, he's not dead. But he was, because there was nothing in him. There's no hope for him. His end is certain. There's no hope. He's dead. Dead man walking, right? And this is a problem with humanity, and it's been, this has been struggled since the beginning of time. These Job, we've always wondered about death. Death acts in a way that it mocks humanity, because it makes us, see, we live a life and we want to fill it with meaning. We want to have good Christmas traditions. We want to have good children. We want to leave a legacy. But death is there. You'll die. You'll die this Christmas. Welcome. Um, but this, it's there. It's this imposing thing. That stands there. How do you deal with this question of death? And there's this uh, existentialist, you know, French philosophy at all. Existentialists are these um, these men who believe everything is meaningless. There are tiny bubbles floating on the sea of nothingness. And Albert Camus is um, one of the, if you want to use great again, uh, existentialist philosophers. And he wrote this book called The Plague. It's a novel. And it's actually pretty interesting because it mirrors a lot of what we just went through with COVID. But he says, um, what's going on is, is the plague, literally the old black death, um, comes and hits the town of Oran in Algiers, in, uh, in Algeria. And when it hits, they start doing exactly what you and I saw uh, in the last few years, which is first they started saying, hey, everybody, wash your hands, be careful. Then they said, well, maybe we should not go out. Maybe we should separate, maybe at home. Then they decided to say, you know what? Um, let's not go out. No communication. Nobody's traveling in and out of the city. And then they put all their hope in a, in a vaccine, a serum. That'll fix us. And they, as he's going through this, there's this, this doctor named Dr. Ryu. And he, um, he's, he's wrestling. He wants to help people. So he commits himself to trying to save as many as he can, which is noble and good. And there's a team of guys and gals who get together and are doing this. And it's an interesting story. But at one point, Dr. Ryu, who is no, he's, no, he's not a Christian, is talking to another colleague of his, Karu. And Karu and him are having a discussion about why he bothers trying to save them. And here's part of that. This is Theroux speaking first. Uh, no, this is Dr. Ryu. So. Since the order of the world is shaped by death, mightn't it be better for God if we refuse to believe in him and struggle with all our might against death without raising our eyes toward heaven where he sits in silence? Theroux nodded. Yes, but your victories will end. Well, sorry, will never be lasting. That's all. Ryu's face darkened. Yes, I know that, but... It's no reason for giving up the struggle. No reason, I agree. Only I now can picture what this plague must mean for you. And he responds to Dr. Yes, a never-ending defeat. And what he means is this. Dr. Ryu is a guy who knows he wants to stop the suffering. But he also knows he cannot stop the suffering. Death is coming. All of his efforts to save people doesn't work. Death comes to them. And if it's not the plague that'll get him, it'll be a heart attack. Or it'll be a bus. Something will get him. And he struggles. 
Why should I do it? Because for him, it's either I have faith and I do nothing. This is the impression he has. I look up to a silent throne and I just hope he'll fix the world or I just ignore him and get to the hard work of fixing the world, dealing with death. And that sounds like it makes sense, but it ends only as he knows. And this is the existentialists. They're very sad people because they know the end is never-ending defeat. Never-ending defeat. You can't end. You can't stop death. And so, when we look back at the vision, God says, you're dead. But there is hope. But the only hope is the, vi- the breath of God. The, the, the ruach in Hebrew, or the pneuma in Greek. The breath of God, which he pours and he breathes into Adam, which he then breathes, he says he's going to breathe into them here. And then in John 20, Jesus breathes on the disciples. And then in Pentecost, the, the Holy Spirit breathes and there's a new creation. This is the only hope. You have no hope of life unless first you are revivified animated somehow by God. That's the only hope you have. And this is why Christmas is important. Because at Christmas, we see that God came to remove the sting of death. And what we mean when Paul says, death, where's your sting? You know what he's saying? This is uh, another British um, poet, and he's a priest in the Anglican church as well, 400 years ago. His name is George Herbert, and he has this beautiful line. You should put this like on your wall. Death used to be an executioner. But the gospel has made him just a gardener. Now, what he means is this. Prior to Christmas, death could do something to you. It could do something. It had an absolute effect on you. It could crush you. But after Christmas, when Christ has come for your sake, the best death can do is plant you into God's soil where he can make you something beautiful. And so death has lost its thing. You'll still die physically, but it won't have its intended impact. It can't end God's plan for you. And so death now is a gardener. And this is what Christmas says. No other worldview will be able to have to do this for you. No other worldview offers hope for the hopeless or death or life for the dead. Every other one will leave something wanting. You'll have to earn it yourself. You'll have to find it yourself. You'll have to just get used to the fact that you have no legacy. So eat, drink, and be merry. But Christianity alone says this. There's hope. And lastly, there's peace. One of the things that's very important here, which I think gets missed often in casual reading, is the bones are not buried. The fact that the bones are strewn across this valley is not uh, not to be glossed over, because in the ancient world, especially in Israel, to be unburied is to be cursed. In fact, God says it very clearly in Deuteronomy 28. Israel, if you disobey me, if you don't live the way I've said, because you're then there's certain rules to living in this world, and if you don't do it, you're going against the manufacturer's intentions. And you're not going to be able to function. And if that happens, the only hope for you is that you're going to be kicked out of the land because it's, you're not fit to live in it. So you'll be exiled. And not only that, you'll die in exile. And when you do, your bones will be unburied, meaning you're under the curse. This is a curse for those who fail to, to follow God. And so when we see the bones of Israel strewn in his vision, what we're being told is Israel is there because they're cursed. There's a bigger problem here. It's not just that they have um, disobeyed God and he's upset. No. They are cursed. They brought something upon themselves. And so, this is important because then, Ezekiel is asked, can these bones live? Why does Ezekiel not say in faith, you know, a good, a good uh, street preacher would say, yes, amen, Lord, you can do it. Right? Why does Ezekiel hold his cards close to his chest and say, you know, it seems like a cop-out, not a cop-out. The reason I think Ezekiel is struggling is because he knows God pretty well. This is why. He knows God can raise the dead. He heard the stories of Elisha and Elijah. 
that both raised people from the dead. Not dry bones, they were pretty new dead bodies, but still. He knew God was the Lord of life. But the question wasn't, can God resurrect them? The question is, will he? Because they've gotten exactly what they deserve. Lord, they've disobeyed. They're just getting their, their just deserts. It's justice that they're getting. So is it, so I think Ezekiel's saying, I don't know. You know. Are you going to do something that they don't deserve? Because otherwise they're dead. And he leaves it open. And this is an important fact. Because he then comes out of nowhere, seemingly, and says, I'll deal with it. I will raise them. I will restore them. I will breathe life into them. And this comfort is there for Israel. So when Ezekiel comes, yes, He's saying doom and gloom to an extent, but he's saying, but there's hope. God is going to reverse this curse somehow. It's not just I'm going to bring you back and provide water for the thirsty. No, I'm going to reverse something that is deep in you that keeps causing you to fall away. I'm going to reverse it. And so it gives them comfort as they look forward to that, to that coming. We, at Christmas, don't have to look forward to it because it came. What they could only hope for and dream of in the future, you and I have full knowledge of because of what happened in the New Testament, because of Christmas. We have, we have this. And so we can sing with that, oh, oh, holy night, right? Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. See what he's saying? I don't know if you hear she, whoever wrote that song. See what he's saying? When Christmas comes, do you understand that this is putting a value on you? That Christ is coming, and his coming says that you are worth whatever somebody is willing to pay for you. And if somebody is willing to come, and the Son of God, the God of the universe, who has everything at his fingertips, says, you are worth his life. What does that say about you? No wonder the soul felt its worth when you see him. Of course it would. And of course you'd probably say, "Mm, not too much, you overpaid. (laughs) That's what we should have said. But we accept it instead, and this is Christmas, that we have this. And what's wonderful about this is that even the valley of the shadow of death has to be swallowed up in victory. Nothing cannot be swallowed up. I get despair that I had this here, where sometimes people say there's certain things that could be something in their life or something they see in somebody else's life, and they say, God can't redeem that. This marriage can't be redeemed. This life can't be redeemed. And I often will ask them very clearly, so there's something in the universe that Christ's blood cannot redeem? And if they say yes, I, had, I, I don't know what to say. I have to part company with you theologically. Nothing is outside of Christmas. Nothing. Nothing. Now, does that mean you have to repent? Sure, of course you have to repent, and of course you have to believe. I get all that. But there is nothing. All of us come here with baggage, every one of us. There is nothing that Christ didn't die for. Nothing. And this is the gift of Christmas. It gives hope for the hopeless, life for the dead, and peace for the world. And even though this peace is not seen everywhere, is it? It's not seen. But... You and I, and the Christians, ought to be the ones who do have peace. I remember watching a few years ago, I didn't see it all, thankfully, but when the Egyptian martyrs were headed to be beheaded by Isis, remember, on the beaches? I was shocked at the peace. I have no conception of the sort of peace that, must, that was in these, these men. I think it was all what men I saw. Um, thankfully, they didn't show anything. But we can have peace amidst the storm because Christ has filled the storm in you. That's why. And it's all because of Christmas. Ezekiel saw it coming. You can only see it dimly in the future, but you and I see it. So let's sing these songs. That's why I got excited when I hear John play and people play. You don't sing for that. What are you going to sing for? What do you sing for? Britney Spears? Is she so cool? I don't know. I, I don't understand. Christmas is awesome. It's wonderful. It reminds us of all this goodness. He is great. Let me pray.